0: Warning, binge mode contains adult content.
1: It does, but these are phenomenally sad chapters. Yes. <laughs> phenomenally sad. Will there be adult content within these? Yeah, pretty sure it's binge mode. Same time, these are very sad. So if sadness and adult content is not your thing, let's check out one of the other great Ringer podcasts on the Ringer Podcast Network. There will be adult tears for sure. There will be many adult tears will be spilt. <sighs> one more warning. Binge mode contains
0: spoilers. If you don't yet know why it is our mercy that matters now. Wow, I'm already about to cry. (laughs) Holy shit.
1: (laughs) Please proceed with extreme caution. And now, binge mode. Sir, it's okay, sir. You're going to be all right. Don't worry. He looked
0: around desperately for help, but there was nobody to be seen, and all he could think was that he must somehow
1: get Dumbledore quickly to the hospital wing. We need to get you up to the school, sir. Madam Pomfrey. No, said Dumbledore. It's Professor Snape who I need, but I don't think I can walk very far just yet. Right, sir. Listen, I'm going to knock on a door, find a place you can stay. Then I can run and get Madam Severus, said Dumbledore clearly. I need Severus.
0: hello yes and welcome to binge on harry potter mm-hmm. i'm mallory rubin executive editor of the ringer.com oh
1: what a great website
0: joining me today now that he's reminded me to keep my mouth shut and my mind closed, it's important. Stringer senior creative and your half-blood prince, Jason Concepcion.
1: No unforgivable curses from you, Mal. But there is Binge Mode Harry Potter where we're exploring every facet of the Harry Potter universe. Whether or not you made it beyond the gates to disappear, please subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please rate and review us. Five points and stars for Binge Mode. Please move past the gates. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Binge underscore mode, a.k.a. the underscore, and join our Facebook group, which is only for Binge Mode fans and which is an excellent place to discuss what that squashy thing on the floor might be, which is like, let's actually not. Let's just keep running towards the gates after Stape and Draco and not think about the squashy stuff. That was truly troubling. (laughs) Last time...
0: On Binge Mode Harry Potter, we explored how Facing the Darkness shapes chapters 24 through 26 of Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince. And on today's episode, we're diving into chapters 27 through 28. A little twist for you. We had originally told you that we were going to be diving into chapters 27 through 30 today, but there's just so much. so much to much. talk about, and we want to give every second of it its due. And we just said our first two-hour episode. Didn't want to immediately have our first three-hour episode, yeah. so here we go. New plan. Requisite spoiler warning for today's binge is always. While those chapters are today's primary focus, we will be going deep, deep on the details from all seven books films, and eight films in the wider Potter canon, taking the entire series into account from the moment Rose Murda asks us if we realize if we've seen. So mount your brooms and take flight because it's time to
1: head to the lightning-struck tower. Mal, I know I will be dead long before you record this, but I want you to know that it was I who discovered your secret. I have stolen the real plot points and intend to destroy them as soon as I can. I face death in the hope that when you meet your podcasting match, you will be mortal once more. Until then... Let's offer up a brief refresher on what actually happened in Prince chapters 27 to 28 by climbing aboard this scarlet steam engine, a plot. The Hogwarts Express, Juju. signed yours sincerely, J.E.C.
0: Harry and Dumbledore return to Hogwarts from the cave. The headmaster weakened from the potion, and the horror only rises when they survey their surroundings. The dark mark hangs above mm. Hogwarts's astronomy tower, showing the Death Eaters have
1: infiltrated the school. They fly to the tower, and Dumbledore instructs Harry to get Snape. But before he can, Malfoy storms up the steps and disarms Dumbledore, who, in his final second with his wand, chooses to immobilize Harry, leaving him stuck beneath the invisibility cloak.
0: Dumbledore and Malfoy speak, but Draco is joined by more Death Eaters, and then by Snape. Dumbledore pleads with him, and Snape utters the killing curse, throwing Dumbledore off the ramparts toward the hard ground below. The Longest, loudest, yes. and most restorative Phoenix song you can possibly find, Isaac. For Albus, Percival, Wolfric, Brian, Brian. Brian Dumbledore.
1: Phoenix Lament for Albus Dumbledore. The Death Eaters flee, and Harry chases them, but Snape, who reveals that he is the half-blood prince, proves too capable a dueler for Harry.
0: After Snape's escape, Harry approaches Dumbledore's body and pockets the locket, which he learns is a fake. Uh-oh. The real Horcrux having been stolen sometime before by a mysterious figure named R.A.B. And that's just two chapters, folks. It's very, very <sighs> incredible two chapters. Oh, here we go. Jason. Podcasting is not nearly as easy as the innocent believes, And that gets us to this episode's big idea. So let's dive into the pensive to sift through our thoughts. The defining theme of chapters 27 and 28 of Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince
1: is burdens. Chapter 27, The Lightning Struck Tower. Harry, concentrating with all his might, apparates himself and Dumbledore back to Hogsmeade. From the book, all was still. The darkness was complete, but for a few street lamps and lit upper windows. Take a moment to lose yourself in this sentence. To let the quiet and calm and peace wash over you, because things aren't going to be still for long. Harry, stitch-searing in his chest, lauds their achievement. We did it! We got the Horcrux! But Dumbledore isn't able to celebrate. He says, that potion was no health drink. And he sinks to the ground at Harry's side. Harry's desperate for help. Desperate for a way to get Dumbledore quickly to the hospital wing, the weight of the headmaster's health now squarely on his shoulders. No one else knows what happened to Dumbledore. No one else knows how dire the need is. But when Harry mentions Madame Pomfrey, Dumbledore says, no, it is Professor Snape whom I need. When Harry starts to mention Madame Pomfrey again, Dumbledore says, Severus, I need Severus. And he's described as speaking clearly. A deliberate contrast to the rest of his current state. He's in pain, enfeebled, weakened, but he has the strength and the clarity to fight for this. He needs Snape, the man we learned earlier in Prince, whom he trusted to tend to him after the ring's curse took hold. The man we'll learn in Hallows, whom he's trusted enough to deliver a different kind of death.
0: Before Harry can act on this direction, though, Madame Rosmerta appears in a dressing gown and high-heeled slippers. Quite a look. She says she saw Dumbledore apparate, and we'll learn later this chapter that she was watching for Dumbledore on Draco's orders, that she's long been Draco's pawn under his imperious curse. But we don't know that yet. And so nothing can quiet the terror that we feel when, in response to Harry asking her if Dumbledore can stay in the three broomsticks while he goes for help, she says, You can't go up there alone. Don't you realize? Haven't you seen? This doesn't register with Harry, who is totally and understandably overcome with worry over Dumbledore's well-being, but Dumbledore snaps to at once. What has happened? Rosemurda, what's wrong? The The dark mark, Albus. And the passage continues. And she pointed into the sky in the direction of Hogwarts. Dread flooded Harry at the sound of the words. Harry's entire purpose, entire identity, entire sense of self hinges on fighting to keep others safe. Hunting Voldemort's horcruxes is is, of course, central to that mission. But when Harry and Dumbledore set out tonight, Harry's gut told him something was wrong, that Draco had broken through at last. He left his Felix Felicis and his Marauder's Map with Hermione, Ron, and Ginny. He begged Dumbledore to heed his warning, and now he's hearing that it might not have been enough, that something might have gone as wrong as wrong can go. Mm. And he looks toward Hogwarts and sees in the sky above the castle the green skull and serpent tongue that mean Voldemort or his minions have killed. Recall Mr. Weasley's words at the Quidditch World Cup, not the ones about needing a nap. (laughs) The other ones. After a mystery caster that we'd eventually learned was Barty Crouch Jr. cast the dark mark into the sky. Quote, the terror it inspired. You have no idea. You're too young. Just picture coming home and finding the dark mark hovering over your house and knowing what you're about to find inside. Everyone's worst fear. The very worst. Harry has experienced an unconscionable number of hardships in his life. Since he was a baby ripped from his parents' loving arms, he's had to shoulder more burdens than anyone should ever even have to contemplate. He just escaped the cave, a chamber of not only secrets, but horrors. And now, for the first time, he's experiencing the fear that Mr. Weasley described, the vice-like compression of the heart and lungs that comes from looking out in the distance and seeing, not hope, not possibility— but an imprint of your impending misery staring down at you from the heavens.
1: Rosemurta tells Dumbledore the mark must have only appeared moments ago. It wasn't there when I put the cat out, she says. At least Draco didn't harm her cat, by the way. Thank God. Dumbledore tells her that they must get back to the castle at once. From the book, And though he staggered a little, he seemed wholly in command of the situation. Remember how truly wounded Dumbledore was two chapters ago when Harry implied that Dumbledore was not taking his students' safety seriously? He's dedicated his life to educating and nurturing young witches and wizards. He's known all year, as we will learn in Hallows, that Draco has been working to kill him. But he never learned about Draco's designs to infiltrate the castle. And right now he's directly interacting with Rosmurda, a woman we'll soon learn, is under the Imperius curse. And he doesn't realize it. We don't note that to knock Dumbledore, no. quite the opposite. It's a reminder of how truly formidable the enemy is. Remember, they can do magic too. Right. If Dumbledore, the greatest wizard of all time, can converse with a woman he's known for ages and not realize that she's being used as a puppet to trick him, what hope does anyone have? And this is something that will dawn on Harry with incredible speed. Even accounting for Dumbledore's weakened state and the corrosive force of seeing the mark above his school, this with full clarity of what's to come, stands as one of the starkest displays of the irrepressible force of the dark. Dumbledore asks for brooms, and Harry summons Rosemurdas from the bar. Before mounting, Albus asks Rosemurdas to alert the Ministry from the book. It might be that nobody within Hogwarts has yet realized anything is wrong. And this is a truly gutting moment, a final second where Dumbledore, Harry, and the reader can believe that the carnage awaiting might not be so complete as to disturb every being within the castle's walls. (sighs)
0: Dumbledore instructs Harry to put on his cloak, and they rise into the air. Harry's ready to reach over and grab Dumbledore if he falters midair, quote, but the sight of the dark mark seemed to have acted upon Mm. Dumbledore like a stimulant. As they fly toward the mark, Harry's terror rises, quote, fear swelling inside him like a venomous bubble compressing his lungs, driving all other discomfort from his mind. He wonders how long they've actually been away. How much time has passed whether the lucky potion that he left with his loved ones will have lasted, will still be providing them safe haven? And then the real horror strikes him. Why did they need that lucky potion in the first place? They needed it because Harry asked them to stand guard, Mm -hmm. just as he'd asked them to go with him to the ministry last year to try to rescue Sirius. In both cases, he asked Ron and Hermione to fight with him, in this case, Ginny too. In both cases, Neville and Luna also got caught up in the web because of their loyalty. All those people did it because they love Harry and believe in his cause. They did it because just like Harry, they truly want to fight for what's right to protect the community that they've built and stop those who would do it harm. When Sirius, Fred, and George fought after Arthur's injury, Sirius told the twins that Arthur wouldn't thank them for compromising his mission, told them, quote, there are things worth dying for. Mm -hmm and Harry's friends feel that way too, just as he does. We'll see at the end of this book and throughout Hallows how very far they're willing to go to stand by his side. We've seen it really every moment to this point, from the smallest assists on a potions essay to following him into the Chamber of Secrets or Roots of the Whomping Willow. But seeing that clearly requires thinking rationally, and right now Harry's thoughts are warped by his worry. Quote, Was it one of them who had caused the mark to be set over the school? Or was it Neville or Luna or some other member of the DA? And if it was, he was the one who had told them to patrol the corridors. He had asked them to leave the safety of their beds. Would he be responsible again for the death of a friend? That last line is a wrenching encapsulation of the burden Harry carries, the burden that he places on himself. He believes in the power of choice. He champions agency, just as Dumbledore has long championed it to him. But he also can't help but feel when his loved ones are in peril that it's because of him. Mm -hmm. The same love that saved him as a baby and will save the world one book from now guides Harry always, also constantly causes him to question himself. It's a push-pull of motivation and doubt,
1: an endless reminder in ways both inspiring and terrifying of what he's fighting for. As they fly toward the castle, Harry hears Dumbledore muttering in a strange language, just as he had in the cave. Harry realizes as he feels the broom shudder upon the crossing the boundary into the grounds that Dumbledore has released the protective enchantments to let them pass. Another small but crucial moment where we're reminded of Dumbledore's station and of what he really represents. The castle's protection stems from his very utterance and very breath. He's a protector, not just in idea, but in execution. The reason behind the no safer place truism that fuels our jokes, but the wizarding world's leaf alike, Harry realizes that the dark mark is above the astronomy tower, the castle's highest. Recall Professor Trelawney's words to Harry after he found her outside the room of requirement as she lamented Dumbledore's refusal to heed her warnings. Again and again, no matter how I lay them out, the lightning struck tower, calamity, disaster, coming nearer all the time. That calamity, that disaster are here at last atop the lightning struck tower to which Dumbledore and Harry are now speeding. When they land atop the tower, the ramparts are deserted. There's no body or indeed any sign of a fight. Harry asks what it means and sees Dumbledore clutching in his chest. Go and wake Severus, said Dumbledore faintly, but clearly tell him what has happened and bring him to me. Do nothing else. Speak to nobody else and do not remove your cloak. When Harry pushes, Dumbledore reminds Harry that he swore to obey and that promise hasn't expired just because they're no longer in the cave, though this night will test so many of their promises to each other.
0: Just as Harry's about to open the door, They hear running on the other side, and Dumbledore motions for Harry to step back. And he draws his wand as he does so. Quote, The door burst open and somebody erupted through it and shouted, Expelliarmus! Harry's body became instantly rigid and immobile, and he felt himself fall back against the tower wall, propped like an unsteady statue, unable to move or speak. He could not understand how it had happened. Expelliarmus was not a freezing charm. Oh, man. But then he sees Dumbledore's wand. The Elder Wand, as we'll learn in Hallows, Mm -hmm. fly over the tower's edge and comprehension strikes. Quote, Dumbledore had wordlessly immobilized Harry, and the second he had taken to perform the spell had cost him the chance of defending himself. Harry observes that Dumbledore shows no sign of panic or distress as he looks at the disarmer and says, (laughs) we'll never forget reading this line for the first time. Good evening, Draco. It's just that moment where you realize, oh my god, just chills upon chills upon chills here. First and most obviously, yep, Harry was right. Mm-hmm. Draco was working to unleash some form of evil upon the school, and here at last, now that it's too late to stop him, is the proof. Mm-hmm. Second, and of paramount importance for Deathly Hallows and the Harry Voldemort Endgame game, Draco, in disarming Dumbledore here, has become master of the Elder yes. Wand. When Harry later disarms Draco at Malfoy Manor, he will become the Death Stick's master and will also be positioned to capitalize on one of Voldemort's many mistakes. Voldemort believed that Snape became the wand's master when he killed Dumbledore because he did not understand that Snape and Dumbledore were really in cahoots and that Snape was far from murdering Dumbledore in cold blood, in fact, granting him his dying wish. Just as he did not understand that Draco, who never held the wand in his hands, had actually won its allegiance in this moment. Mm -hmm. Much more on this, obviously, in time. And third, the decision that led Draco to becoming the wand's master. Dumbledore choosing to freeze Harry rather than protecting himself is one of the series' most simultaneously agonizing and tender moments. Dumbledore's decision deprives Harry of something sacred, his ability to act. He robs Harry of the chance to even try to intervene, to even try to save the headmaster as Dumbledore knows that Harry would. And that's crucial because Harry would. He would have to try. He would not be capable of standing by. Dumbledore forces a boy of action and instinct to stand by, literally invisible, as unthinkable horrors play out before his eyes. But Dumbledore does this for Harry. There is, simply put, no way that he could not have disarmed Draco or in some other way prevented Draco from disarming him if he had chosen to do so, even in his weakened state. He made a choice, just as he's always shown Harry that Harry does, that Harry can't, to prioritize someone he loves over himself. And he's doing it for the chess game, sure. He's doing it because he knows that he's going to die and because Harry must live, must survive in order to destroy Voldemort's horcruxes, including the one inside of himself. He's doing it so that Harry, whom Dumbledore knows hates Malfoy and Snape, cannot interfere in the delicate ballet about to unfold. But he's also doing it to protect Harry from himself, from Mm -hmm. his anger, from his foes. Dumbledore has shielded Harry from the truth, but also from so much danger. And here, for the last time before his death, he acts as shield again, finding one more way to seal protective magic around Harry or send a charging statue or soaring bird to his aid in mere chapters As Harry sits at Dumbledore's funeral, he'll think of the headmaster as the last and greatest of his protectors. Dumbledore's lessons and shields will come to Harry from beyond the grave, but here in Dumbledore's final moments of life, he looks, for all of his many-layered reasons, to act on his self-assigned precious burden to keep Harry safe.
1: Draco sees the second broom and asks, who else is there? Dumbledore, just as we saw in the secret riddle and Lord Voldemort's request, and the only one he ever feared knows how to make the words, the very physics of a conversation like this, work in his favor. He turns the question around, asking, who's with him tonight? Mm -hmm. Draco, as Dumbledore surely anticipated, can't wait to boast. I've got backup. There are Death Eaters here in your school tonight. (sighs) The one thing that everyone has been working so hard to prevent Well, well, said Dumbledore as though Malfoy was showing him an ambitious homework project. Very good indeed. You found a way to let them in, did you? I remember one of the things that really struck me about reading this for the first time was you don't like Draco over the course of the series. You're not supposed to as the reader, but you don't ever take him seriously. Not in a real way, not in the same way that, you know, some of the other antagonists in the series you took seriously. In this moment, It is such an incredible feeling to realize that you have underestimated a character and that the author has set that up that way.
0: Because everybody around Harry has, too.
1: Yeah. It's like, wow, I really underestimated this guy. I didn't think he'd get to this point or be able to force this moment. And he really did. It's an amazing moment. From the book, again, very good indeed. You found a way to let them in, did you? He's buying time until Snape arrives. But he's also genuinely curious Mm -hmm. and eager to give Harry, his witness, as much information as possible. He's going to work to get Draco to show his contrition and to get Harry to see it. We learn that Draco's army met, quote, some of your guards on the way up the Order of the Phoenix, the protection Dumbledore ensured Harry he had put in place. From the book again, I came on ahead. I've got a job to do. Dumbledore says, well, then they must get on and do it, my dear boy, said Dumbledore softly. It's just such
0: a privilege to watch Dumbledore work. It yeah. really is. Harry watches Frozen. Dumbledore smiles. And this moment is Dumbledore in miniature, determined even in the face of seeming defeat to show someone the way. Draco, Draco, he says, you are not a killer. How do you know? Draco asks. And Harry observes the Draco flushing and quick to clarify, seems embarrassed by that retort. But it also plays upon a reread as a kind of plea. Draco asking, even if he's not yet conscious that this is what he's doing, Dumbledore to convince him that he doesn't have to do this. Draco tells Dumbledore that he doesn't know what Draco has done, but he's wrong. And here, the reader and Harry alike realize that every time Dumbledore implored Harry to move on from his Draco-centric quests, it was not because he didn't believe that Draco was plotting something, but rather because he already knew and was working with Snape, as he hints at here, and as we will learn about in detail in Hallows, both to stop Draco and to save him. He mentions Katie and Ron. Quote, you have been trying with increasing desperation to kill me all year. Forgive me, Draco, but they have been feeble attempts. So feeble, to be honest, that I wonder whether your heart has really been in it. And this plays like a taunt, but it's also a pitch. Yeah. Look inward. Assess your heart. Search your feelings. Ask yourself. Is this really the choice that you want to make? And we will learn over the course of Draco's remaining arc, most particularly in Cursed Child, that he felt impossibly burdened by his father's choices, by the life that Lucius's actions had forced Draco to live. To be very clear, that doesn't excuse Draco's prejudice or his bullying or the actions right here, right now, that brought Death Eaters into the school. But it does show how trapped he felt, Mm -hmm. how unsure he was, Even here, with the greatest wizard of all time offering him an out of whether there could really ever be
1: any other way. As this exchange continues, Harry hears a yell from the castle. Dumbledore seems to draw strength from this. Draco more fear. Draco, quote, seemed almost as paralyzed as Harry was. Dumbledore suggests that Draco get on with it alone. He says, after all, you don't really need help. I have no wand at the moment. I cannot defend myself. He notes that Draco must be afraid to act until he has his allies with him. When Draco says it's Dumbledore who should be afraid, Dumbledore asks why from the book. I don't think you will kill me, Draco. Killing is not nearly as easy as the innocent believe. This is not dissimilar to the you need to mean them line Bellatrix sends Harry's way in order regarding unforgivable curses. But this is not issued as a taunt, again, about the receiver's lack of readiness or worth. It's a reminder that Draco can still count himself among the innocents, at least in this sense, and a reminder of just what Harry and Dumbledore are working to stop in Voldemort, a being for whom killing no longer carries any cost. Dumbledore, buying time, asks Draco how he got the Death Eaters into the school from the book. It seems to have taken you a long time to work out how to do it. More of Dumbledore's delicate dance here. Simultaneously a dunk, always in control of every aspect of the conversation, even disarmed, Mm -hmm. And a nod to Draco's commitment, Malfoy, looking poised to throw up from the stress and the pressure of this moment, reveals the truth at last. He says, I had to mend that broken vanishing cabinet that no one's used for years, the one Montague got lost in last year. Ah, Dumbledore's sigh was half a groan. He closed his eyes for a moment. That was clever. There is a pair, I take it, half a groan. A real lament here that he didn't see this particular piece on the board, didn't put that together. Malfoy reveals that the twin is in Borgin and Burks, which Montague told him when he recovered from his imprisonment in the cabinet's portal last year, from which he could hear events on both ends, but reach neither for the book again. Everyone thought it was a really good story, but I was the only one who realized what it meant. Even Borgin didn't know. I was the one who realized there could be a way into Hogwarts through the cabinets if I fixed the broken one. JK is incredible at dialogue. Draco is just so needy in this moment for someone to be like, good job. Mm-hmm. Even recounting this terrible fucking thing that he did well which is particularly
0: fascinating because he's not one of the characters in the series who we think of as needing reinforcement and praise Mm -hmm. like we think of ron yeah as being somebody who's always overshadowed and always feels this desperate thirst for Mm -hmm. someone to just say i see you right you're doing great draco is quite the opposite he's always had everything handed to him on a silver platter has always done well and you feel in a moment like that really what the pressure of being his father's son
1: has done to him. Yes. And this is a terrible moment for Harry, hearing this at last, piecing together too late the puzzle he has been trying to solve all year. And actually had every jaggedy edge. So many of the pieces were there. Yeah. But he just couldn't put it together in time. Harry has seen has been in the cabinet in and Brooks, has walked right past the cabinet in the Room of Requirement this year. He had every bit of knowledge he needed, but despite his obsessive drive, his unceasing determination to crack the riddle, he lost to the one burden that never relents on any of us time. He just didn't have the time to put it together.
0: That's agonizing.
1: The fact that he is so close is actually what makes it hurt all
0: the more. Dumbledore brings up the necklace and the meat again. The futile, sloppy attempts that Draco made as the cabinet mending faltered. And he says, too that he realized Draco was the one behind all of those attempts. More clarity for Harry and readers that Dumbledore did not think Harry wrong, even as he dismissed him. Draco asks, well, if you knew, why didn't you try to stop me? I tried, Draco, Dumbledore says. Professor Snape has been keeping watch over you on my orders. He hasn't been doing your orders. He promised my mother. Of course, that is what he would tell you, Draco, but Hmm. he's a double agent you stupid old man. He isn't working for you. You just think he is. We must agree to differ on that, Draco. It so happens that I trust Professor Snape. Well, you're losing your grip then. (sighs) These words ran through heads and hearts and the weight between Prince Mm -hmm. and Hallows. As people debated with each other, with themselves, what side Snape was really on, could Draco have been right here? Was Dumbledore really a stupid old man after all? Was he really losing his grip? No, of course not. His trusted Snape was one of the truest things in the world. But everything between now and the prince's tale will test that fully as Draco begins to gloat psychophantically about how he'll soon be the Dark Lord's favorite. Dumbledore pieces together who Draco's Hogsmeade accomplice actually was. was Rosmerta, under the Imperius Curse, passed the necklace in her pub and poisoned the mead that she then sent to Slughorn. Dumbledore asks how Draco has been sending her orders, given the school's monitoring of all known methods of communication. Enchanted coins, Draco says. Isn't that what the DA used last Mm -hmm. year, Dumbledore asks? And as this exchange plays out, Draco's wand hand is shaking and Dumbledore is sliding further down the wall. They're both working to maintain their resolve, but they're also both crumbling in different respects. Yeah, I got the idea from them, said Malfoy with a twisted smile. And it Really hurts to hear this, to realize that Draco has co-opted and befouled a technique that Hermione and Harry used not to do harm, but to unite the well-intentioned against oppression
1: and evil. Draco says he also got the idea to poison mead, quote, from the mudblood Granger, whom he heard saying Filch wouldn't recognize potions. Please do not use that offensive word in front of me, Dumbledore says. Malfoy gave a harsh laugh. You care about me saying mud blood when I'm about to kill you? Yes, I do, said Dumbledore. We learn in Hallow's why this matters so much to Dumbledore, how he worked to crawl out of the pit of temptation that Grindelwald and his anti-Muggle rhetoric dug for him. He is fighting even at the end for what's right, just as he's implored his students to do. He asks what happened tonight specifically and learns that Rosemurta tipped off Draco to Dumbledore's Hogsmeade trip from the book but she said you were just going for a drink you'd be back well Well, I certainly did have a drink and I came back after a fashion (laughs) mumbled Dumbledore iconic even now Draco upon Dumbledore's exit sprang a trap putting the dark mark over the astronomy tower so that Dumbledore would fly up there to see who's been killed and it worked he shouts well yes and no that big Dumbledore energy doesn't quit guys Dumbledore asks a key question the one Harry Shirley has been waiting for if the mark was just a trap Does that mean no one's dead? Malfoy says, someone's dead. And his voice seemed to go up an octave as he said it. One of your people, I don't know who, it was dark. I stepped over a body. I was supposed to be waiting up here when you got back, only your phoenix lot got in the way. Yes, they do that, said Dumbledore. The commotion in the castle seemed to be drawing nearer as Harry hears this and his, quote, heart thundered unheard in his invisible chest. Who had died? Which loss will burden Harry's soul moving forward?
0: So many great lines from Dumbledore there. Yes, they do that. He's the best. Dumbledore, also hearing the approaching warriors, says there's not much time left. It's one of my favorite parts. Quote, so let us discuss your options, Draco. Draco fronts, tries to act tough, tries to act in control. He has the wand. He has the power. But Dumbledore notes yet again, if he really intended to use that wand to kill, he would have done so by Mm -hmm. now when Dumbledore was alone and unarmed and clearly weak, as vulnerable as Draco could ever hope to find. Instead, Draco, as Dumbledore puts it, stopped for this pleasant chat about ways and means. (laughs) And now, Draco's facade cracks, and his terror begins to show through, overtly. I haven't got any options, said Malfoy, and he was suddenly white as Dumbledore. I've got to do it. He'll kill me. He'll kill my whole family. Draco has done and said vile things. He also is a boy who is desperately afraid, not only of what might happen to him, but of facing the question of who he wants to be. This is the moment for him to decide. Now, you could fairly say that he's had plenty of those moments before and that he failed to make the right choice. Here is another opportunity for him to choose differently. Dumbledore, whose trust and belief in second chances has always maddened Harry so, Mm -hmm. sees this. I appreciate the difficulty of your position, said Dumbledore. Why else do you think I have not confronted you before now? Because I knew that you would have been murdered if Lord Voldemort realized that I suspected you. He worried that Voldemort would use legitimacy against Draco. Quote, But now, at last, we can speak plainly to each other, he says. In many respects, Dumbledore's recent life has been defined by these moments the opportunity to speak plainly at last. Some of those moments for him will never come in the corporeal world. Some came, but too late. But he still believes here that there's time. I can help you, Draco, he says. No, you can't, said Malfoy, his wand hand shaking very badly indeed. Nobody can. He told me to do it or he'll kill me. I've got no choice. Ah, choice. There it is. The word. The key word. One of the defining themes of the story, one of the pillars on which Harry's tale is built. We so often hear of how their respective choices is what separates Harry and Voldemort. But they're not alone in this story. Everyone, including Draco, has the power to decide. Everyone, including Draco, feels the utter hopelessness that stems from believing that agency has been deprived. Dumbledore promises to hide Draco and his family to protect them completely. He appeals once more to Draco's sense of self. You are not a killer. And then we get one of the most gutting exchanges in the series. But I got this far, didn't I? Mm -hmm. Draco says. They thought I'd die in the attempt, but I'm here and you're in my power. I'm the one with the wand. You're at my mercy. This next line from Dumbledore is an all-timer. No, Draco, said Dumbledore quietly. It is my mercy and not yours. That matters now. (laughs) Just incredible. I remember being so afraid for him in that moment, so afraid for Dumbledore, but also just so awed by him. Mercy is a gift, a humanizing salve, but it is also a burden. Think, as we often do, of Ned Stark and the madness of mercy that doomed him, and think of Varys' loaded reply Ah, the children. It's always the innocents who suffer. So often, compassion is one of war's Mm. first victims. Wisdom, too. But Dumbledore knows that war isn't worth waging, absent grace and charity, that those are the very virtues that they're really battling to protect. The end may be near, but Dumbledore is not going to be, in Harry's words, dragged into the arena. He is walking in
1: with his head held high. Malfoy does not speak, but his wand hand trembles, and Harry believes that he sees it, quote, drop a fraction. Draco has decided to lower his wand, which Harry will not forget. But before Draco can repent, before he can do anything, four people in black robes burst through the door. From the book, still paralyzed, his eyes staring unblinkingly, Harry gazed in terror upon four strangers. It seemed the Death Eaters had won the fight below. We learn that two of the four are the brother-sister horror show Amicus and electo Carrow. A third is Fenrir Greyback, the infamous werewolf who bit Lupin and enjoys preying on children. Harry can smell unmistakably blood on him. He's now attacking even absent the full moon. Horrifying. Dumbledore asks if Greyback has, quote, developed a taste for human flesh that cannot be satisfied once a month. That's right, said Fenrir Greyback. Shocks you that, does it, Dumbledore? Frightens you? Well, I cannot pretend it does not disgust me a little, said Dumbledore. He is shocked, he says, that Draco let this child mauling monster into a school his friends call home. I didn't, says Draco, who seems afraid to even look at Greyback, the name he tossed around as a weapon and a fear tactic at Borgin and Burkes earlier this year. Draco is now facing the burdens of his own actions bearing fruit, of his taunts becoming reality. Greyback picks flesh from his teeth as blood drips down his chin, like what transpired in the cave. This is pure horror. The fourth Death Eater tells Draco to act, and then the siblings notice Dumbledore's frail state. They mock him, asking what happened. Oh, weaker resistance, slower reflexes, amicus, old age, in short, one day perhaps it will happen to you if you are lucky. This is another classic Dumbledore moment, owning his enemies, refusing to concede that he's at their power. And just as crucially, reminding Harry and us, on the brink of his death— That he's lived a long and full life. Dumbledore has shown us before how old age is a burden. Remember his line, youth cannot know how age thinks and feels, he told Harry in order. But old men are guilty if they forget what it was to be young, and I seem to have forgotten lately. But old age is also a gift, the product of those choices and that courage and that love. So sad right now.
0: The unnamed Death Eater orders Draco again, but Draco's hand is shaking too badly to even aim. Quote, Harry's heart was hammering so hard, it seemed impossible that nobody could hear him standing there imprisoned by Dumbledore's spell. If he could only move, he could aim a curse from under the cloak. Harry's helplessness is his burden now. And then the doors burst open again. (sighs) And Snape emerges into the battle between two sides full of people who doubt him and also people who believe he's theirs. Quote, his black eyes swept the scene. Amicus is speaking to Snape, telling him Draco seems unable to act. Quote, but somebody else had spoken Snape's name quite softly. Severus. The sound frightened Harry beyond anything he had experienced all evening for the first time. Dumbledore was pleading. Pleading, we think, initially, Mm -hmm. for Snape to save his life. To choose him. Pleading, we will realize with full clarity in Deathly Hallows, For Snape to honor his promise to Dumbledore to end his life. Killing Dumbledore so that Draco doesn't have to. Killing Dumbledore so that Draco's soul stays intact. Killing Dumbledore so that Snape's position in Voldemort's camp is assured in a way that no other act could so fully guarantee. Ensuring that Snape can act on the information about Nagini and Harry and Voldemort's soul that Dumbledore, we will learn, has entrusted to him and no one else. Killing Dumbledore to spare the man who gave him a second chance, a second life, a shameful death at the hands of a monster like Greyback, killing Dumbledore to ensure that Snape can work to honor the pledge that defined his life, helping Harry survive. Snape remains silent as he pushes Malfoy out of the way. Quote, Snape gazed for a moment at Dumbledore and there was revulsion and hatred etched in the harsh lines of his face. I remember... Feeling real terror in this moment, reading this for the first time. Revulsion and hatred, we will realize, not for the man himself, but for the fact that Dumbledore is making Snape do this. Revulsion and hatred for Snape himself, for being the one to do it. Mm -hmm. For the burden that Dumbledore placed on Snape by asking him to kill the one man who ever believed in him the way that Dumbledore did, the person who saved him and gave him purpose. And my soul, Dumbledore, mine, Mm. we will hear Snape ask when we dive into his memories in The Prince's Tale. Dumbledore changed myriad things about Snape's life and his perspective. Snape will never be a perfect man. He is deeply flawed. He is cruel. He has done terrible things. But love saved him, and Dumbledore did too. And now, after losing Lily, he has to lose the one other person who gave him true strength because that person is making it so. Another test of Snape's courage, another test of his commitment, another test of his ability to choose what's right over what's easy. Quote, Severus, please. Snape raised his wand and pointed it directly at Dumbledore. Avada Kedavra. Surely no reader will ever forget experiencing this for the first time. Just as paralyzed by terror and despair as Harry. I remember not being able to sleep at all the night after reading this. Quote, a jet of green light shot from the end of Snape's wand and hit Dumbledore squarely in the chest. (sighs) Harry's scream of horror never left him. Silent and unmoving, he was forced to watch as Dumbledore was blasted into the air. For a split second, he seemed to hang suspended beneath the shining skull, and then he fell slowly backward, like a great rag doll, over the battlements and out of sight.
1: Woof! <sighs> it's masterful shit from J.K. Rowling. <laughs> <It's> just, <laughs> and we talk a lot about the like, uh, craft. One of the things that you can control as a writer is when things happen. This is a linear medium, literature, and was definitely not expecting that she would kill Dumbledore here. Not at all. Not even a little bit. From the moment I saw him on the cover art, I knew he was doomed in this book. Really? Yeah. I didn't think it would happen here. And
0: I think part of it, and we're going to talk about this a lot more next episode, but part of it is, it's the hero's journey and Mm -hmm. what it means for Harry to fully come into his own. For him to fully shoulder this burden, he has to be there at the front. Dumbledore can't be helping him, can't be showing him the way. Mm The tragedy of that burden is that you have to lose the mentor, the guide, at some point along that road. But knowing that it had to happen, knowing that it probably would, didn't make it any easier. In fact, every word and page of the book was charged with this sense of doom and inevitability for me where I was just waiting, waiting. For that blow to fall and the way that it does with every character who you've ever doubted or wanted so badly to believe in, finding themselves together in this place, in this moment of time. It's just such perfect execution and storytelling. And then to your point about linear storytelling, it is simultaneously that and something that we will realize in time has all of these little time loops built Mm -hmm. in where all these things are happening that we don't realize, and then they're there for us when we go back and we can see every detail and every thread that was stitched together so perfectly into the fabric of this story. It's just unbelievable. How long did it take you to come back around on Snape? Like, What was your journey from Um, is he good or is he bad here? And obviously we acknowledge and fully believe that good and bad is sort of a binary that we reject. But even so, what was
1: your journey And the time frame of your journey here of assessing which side Snape was really on. I mean, it was, obviously, I was grappling with, could Dumbledore have been this wrong? You know, you have to face with this. At the same time, (laughs) you know, you bring your experience with you as a reader. Mm -hmm. I just couldn't shake the feeling that, okay, but there's other moves that I don't understand. There's still something else. There's a reason he was this sure that it unfolded in this way. And it just... Whatever those final reveals are, I can't believe that this is it. This is not it. Yeah. Because it actually would be a less interesting story if it was simply, oh, they were wrong. Harry was right the whole time. Snape is truly bad. Right. There has to be another level to it. Yeah. So that was my feeling. And I wasn't sure what it was, obviously, but I felt like, okay, there's got to be something else. Yeah. There's a deeper reveal here.
0: I felt the first night. When I finished reading this chapter and obviously then the rest of the book, I literally couldn't sleep. And I've only experienced that feeling twice ever in my life as a reader where I was so just truly crushed and actually felt a level of personal betrayal. Yeah. This and The Red Wedding. Right. And I felt that way for about a day and a half. And then I said, no way. There's no way. I don't believe that this is true. I don't believe that Dumbledore made this mistake, and I don't believe that that's the lesson of the story. And then I started going back through all the books again and again, just relentlessly in a run-up to Deathly Hallows. A lot of time on Leaky Cauldron, a lot of time on MuggleNet, looking for every clue, just parsing. And we'll talk about some of this as we assess the Mm -hmm. next chapter here. Parsing every word, every description, every of Snape's body language, everything he ever said or did. And you could do it on either side to build your case. You know, we talked about that in the Spinner's End chapter, how part of what makes that so brilliantly constructed is that everything you need is there no matter what point you want to make. And I just did that ceaselessly until I had convinced myself beyond a shadow of a doubt. (laughs) And then it's really hard for a lot of Hallows to hold on to that faith. But obviously it's rewarded in the end. And now a brief break for a word from our sponsor. Today's binge road is brought to you by Hello Fresh. As your family is getting back to the swing of school schedules, let Hello Fresh take the guesswork out of meals
1: week after week. With three plans to choose from—classic, veggie, and mm, family—Hello Fresh's meal kits make dinner easy, even amidst the after-school chaos. No more having to plan. Spend money on takeout? Or worry about gathering ingredients week after week? I hate worrying about that. Not to mention, the easy-to-follow recipes and pre-measured ingredients are all delivered right to your door in recyclable,
0: insulated packaging. Which comes in handy on those hectic school nights. When your to-do list is a mile long. Or you're busy
1: chauffeuring kids. Practices. And study groups There's even a one-pot recipe for maximum mm. flavor with minimal cleanup So you can get that
0: time back mm. To do more of what you love like, like listening to binge mode Listen, we love to eat We're busy folks, lot yes. going on And few things in life are more delightful Than a easily preparable, delicious and nutritious meal Favorite recipe, listen mm. How can we pick?
1: Variety is part of what is so delightful about the experience. It's the spice of life and HelloFresh. For a total of $60 off, that's $20 off your first three boxes. Visit HelloFresh.com slash Binge60 and enter the code Binge60.
0: Get the equivalent of six meals free when you go to HelloFresh.com slash Binge60 and enter code
1: Binge60. And now back to binge mode. Chapter 28, Flight of the Prince. Life is never the same when a loved one dies. The experience is like a small death. One moment a person is alive and part of the world and in a flash they're gone. And it's a change so irrevocable that in the immediate aftermath, the heart and the mind simply can't accept it. From the book, Harry felt as though he too were hurtling through space. It had not happened. It could not have happened. The world as Harry knows it has essentially ended. And yet, just as when he lost Ceres, it spins on. In the months and years to come, Harry will have to grapple with what the events of this night mean, but that's simply all too much now. And so a kind of shocked clarity takes hold. He realizes that he's frozen no longer by the spell, but by his own shock, released from the full body bind, the weight of the war against Voldemort is now squarely on his shoulders. And Harry knows only that he has to stop Snape, stop Draco, And agonizingly, that he must find Dumbledore. From the book, Terror tore at Harry's heart. He had to get to Dumbledore. He cannot accept what he knows to be true. He uses Petrificus on the Death Eater closest to him and sets off after Snape and Draco to find a battle raging in the halls below the tower. Harry hears Snape's voice over the din and flies after it. He's attacked suddenly by the dreaded Fenrir Greyback, whose foul fur is drenched in the blood of his victims. No time for fear or hesitation now. Harry is laser-focused, and he reacts and paralyzes the werewolf. There are bodies on the ground around him, his feet meeting, quote, something squashy and slippery. He's running through a battlefield, but he can't even stop to see if the victims are friends or foes. There's no time for this now. He sees Ginny up ahead, dodging Amicus Carrow's unforgivable curses. Harry takes him out with Impedimenta. He sees Ron and McGonagall and Lupin battling a Death Eater apiece, and Tonks engaged in a battle just beyond them. The castle is crumbling around them, spells shattering walls and windows. He passes an injured Neville, once again bravely involved in the fight. The nearly chosen one tells Harry that Snape and Malfoy just passed. I know I'm on it, said Harry. In any other circumstance, Harry would stand here with his friends and fight, but not now. He's carrying the knowledge of Dumbledore's demise at the hands of Snape. The responsibilities of waging not just this battle, but the war beyond this. All those things have been passed down to him now. He plunges on after Snape and Draco, ignoring the calls of his friends and classmates to come back.
0: The pursuit winds Harry through the halls of the castle. There is so much blood on the ground that he's able to track Snape, despite Snape's massive head start, by following the bloody footprints that is truly horrifying detail. Harry follows the footprints toward the front door, realizing that the room of requirement must be blocked. They must be heading for the gate. When Harry reaches the ground after passing terrified pajama-clad students as he runs, he glimpses Snape and Draco silhouetted against flashes of light, and he realizes that Hagrid has joined the fray. This is a really agonizing stretch here. Harry is just lost in Dumbledore, the man who essentially raised him. Hagrid is not quite a parental figure. He's more a hybrid of brother and friend. But he brought Harry into the wizarding world. Long before he taught him in class, he absorbed the burden of teaching Harry other things. Who he was, why he mattered, what he'd done. Hagrid plucked Harry out of a miserable life with the Dursleys and told him the truth of his very being. And Hagrid's intervention over the Dursleys' various objections and obstacles led directly to Harry's life at Hogwarts, to Ron and Hermione and all their adventures, to their triumphs and tragedies alike. Hagrid is, simply put, family. And the thought of losing him too tears at Harry, quote, though every breath seemed to shred his lung and the stitch in his chest was like fire. Harry sped up as an unbidden voice in his head said, not Hagrid, not Hagrid too. Harry is already carrying the weight of too many losses. He cannot bear this one, too. After a brief exchange of spells with the caros, Harry runs on, seeing Hagrid battling the huge blonde Death Eater, his half-giant skin absorbing the man's curses. But Snape and Draco are almost at the gates, beyond which they'll be able to disapparate to freedom, so close to getting away with what Harry thinks is Dumbledore's murder.
1: Harry closes to within 20 yards of the pair and shouts, Stupefy! He misses, but the spell gets Snape's attention, and he tells Draco to keep on going. Then he turns to face Harry. They look at each other and raise their wands in unison. Harry, without blinking, attempts Crucio. Snape easily parries it. There's so much about this exchange that follows.
0: Just the very fact that they are staring
1: each other down at last. There's so much about it. One of the things that jumped out at me immediately is just how advanced Snape is. Harry is not a match for Snape. You can't even imagine that he could possibly duel with Snape. You just really get a sense of how good Snape is. It's not dissimilar. Even though it's different, it's not
0: dissimilar to your point about understanding the scope of someone's ability from Harry witnessing Dumbledore and Voldemort duel in the ministry. And... Part of the point—there are obviously a million things at play in that scene, but part of the point is just to show you how far ahead yeah. of Harry they really are. How important the things like love and courage and choice in his life really are because they're the things that allow yeah. him to close that gap, not the skill. And that's no shaded Harry, who yes. is very advanced. He's very advanced. But this is a different it's a kind different level. of thing. And Snape, again— Whichever side you thought he was on, whichever thing you believed, he was tricking one of them. Yeah. He was tricking Dumbledore or and that Voldemort. Had to be,
1: that has to be the case.
0: And that's not even a demerit against one of them. Yeah. It's a
1: testament to Snape's skill, and you see it here as well. Snape easily parries the unforgivable, knocking Harry down as the blonde Death Eater lights Hagrid's house on fire with Fang inside the yelps of the animal. Horrible. The last time Harry tried to— Protect Fang. Protect him, please. The last time Harry tried to use this spell during the Battle of the Ministry, Bellatrix told Harry that righteous anger was not enough. He needed to mean it. And more than needed to mean it, needed to actually want to cause someone pain for the curse word. What about now? After years of suffering Snape's taunts and bullying, years of believing that Snape was an agent of Voldemort, of warning Dumbledore of just that, to no avail, only to, as far as he knows and believes, just have his suspicions proved correct in the most horrific of ways. Does Harry mean it now? Does he want to hurt Snape? Would he enjoy doing it? Only Harry knows. I honestly don't know. Only Harry knows. It's an incredible moment. I lean, I think no. I think no. But the fact that you can ask the question is notable. That's what's incredible here. He tries a second time and Snape blocks him again. One of the biggest clues to Snape's true role as Harry's protector is that he could easily respond in kind here. Easily, yes, but he does not. No unforgivable curses from you, Potter. You haven't got the nerve or the ability. Harry attempts Incarcerus and Snape casually dismisses this as easily as if he were handing Harry detention. <laughs> Fight back. Harry screamed at him, fight back, you cowardly. Ah, and this strikes a nerve with Snape. Mm-hmm. Coward? Did you call me, Potter? shouted Snape. Your father would never attack me unless it was four-on-one. What would you call him, I wonder? Harry attempts to stupefy, and Snape flicks this away, blocked again and again and again until you learn to keep your mouth shut and your mind closed, Potter. This moment is a distillation of this entire exchange, and... Their entire relationship, almost. Harry wanting justice and revenge attacks Snape. Snape, meanwhile, openly loathful toward Harry, yet steadfast in his promise to protect the son of his true love. He not only refuses to strike back, but uses this awful, terrible, appalling moment on this terrible night to attempt to teach Harry, as he did last year, the importance of closing his mind. This is one of the many moments that readers who wanted to believe in Snape, clung to in the wait between Prince and Hal as a clear effort, not only to avoid harm, but to actively seek to guide, to honor, even in his grief and desperate need to flee, the burden of his promise.
0: As Snape urges the Death Eaters toward the gates and Harry attempts impedimenta, his body is wracked by excruciating agony, and he thinks it's Snape. But then his secret protector steps in, as he has so many times before, as he will so many times again. No, roared Snape's voice, and the pain stopped as suddenly as it had started. Harry lay curled on the dark grass, clutching his wand and panting. Somewhere overhead, Snape was shouting, have you forgotten our orders? Potter belongs to the Dark Lord. We are to leave him. Go, go. Snape is using Voldemort's desire to kill Harry directly as cover." To save not only Harry's life, but to spare Harry from even suffering pain and harm. Another moment that pro Snape readers clung to. Released from the curse, Harry screams with rage. You can feel every emotion for him in that moment his grief, his fear, his rage, his frustration at just not being able to win here. Snape and Draco, his two longest-running foes, have just torn Harry's world apart. Snape, the man he never trusted, the man he begged Dumbledore not to trust so fully either, has, as far as Harry knows, murdered Dumbledore, robbing Harry of his mentor and crippling the war effort against Voldemort. Draco has invaded Hogwarts, a secret space for Harry and so many others, and they're going to get away with it. Quote, in that instant, he cared not whether he lived or died. Pushing himself to his feet again, he staggered blindly towards Snape, the man he now hated as much as he hated Voldemort himself. Wow. Once again, Harry finds himself in pursuit of the person who ripped a loved one from his life, blinded by his rage, but led by it, too. He lurches towards Snape and tries to cast Sectumsempra, which Snape parries. Then, only a few feet from his mark, Harry attempts the nonverbal spell, Levicorpus. Corpus. It is a moment rich with tragic irony. Harry is using Snape's words, keep your mouth shut and your mind closed, as a guide and challenge, and though he doesn't know it yet, deploying Snape's written words, his spells, as weapons against their maker. Harry has learned so much from Snape, learned how to face so many challenges and so many burdens, but he doesn't yet
1: realize it. When Snape blocks the nonverbal attempt, he does so with rage of his own, casting Harry back so hard his wand flies out of his hand. You dare use my own spells against me, Potter? It was I who invented them, I the half-blood prince. And you'd turn my inventions on me like your filthy father, would you? I don't think so, no. This moment brings Snape's burdens to the fore. He's devoted the second half of his life to protecting Harry to honor Lily and attempt to atone for his role in her death. But Harry isn't just the son of the woman Snape loved, he's the son of the man Snape hated. When Harry intruded into Snape's worst memory during their occlumency lessons, he saw Snape's shame for besmirching Lily, but also James attacking Snape, humiliating him in front of his peers, using a spell we know Harry's since discovered in the Prince's book. Here we realize how many layers this particular onion holds. Snape's misery exacerbated not only by losing to James— but by losing at the hands of something he made, something he brought into existence. And now Harry, the reminder of James, the living, breathing result of James's victory over Snape for Lily's heart, is doing it again. Harry doesn't have the time to process, let alone really even absorb what he's hearing, but this knowledge will weigh on him too. He trusted the prince. He defended him against Hermione's persecution. He believed in him, learned from him, came to love him as teacher and friend. Now he's learned that the man he loves more than any other, is the person he thought he wanted in his life. In the end, that contradiction will be an utterly fitting encapsulation of Harry and Snape's entire relationship. Mistaken identity, masked intentions revealed too late. But in the end, trust found. Here, it's just more pain and shame to carry. Harry goes for his want, but Snape sends it flying into the darkness. Snape has Harry at his mercy. He could do anything to him now. Indeed, as Bellatrix pointed out at the beginning of this book, Snape has had Harry at his mercy from the moment Potter arrived at Hogwarts. Kill me then, panted Harry, who felt no fear at all, but only rage and contempt. Kill me like you killed him, you coward. Incredible moment here from Snape coming. Snape is divisive in the fictional reality and in ours, which is what makes him such a truly incredible creation. We are, after all. Years later, still debating his actions, still parsing his words, still talking about is he good or bad? Why do you like him? Why did you not like him? He's misunderstood in this fictional reality because he does not wish to be understood. He's deeply ashamed of many things, chief among them, conveying Trelawney's prediction to Voldemort, which led directly to the death of the woman he loves. Since then, he's played an immensely dangerous double game. We talk often about Harry being on the front lines of the Wizarding War and how much of his recklessness stems from his frustrations over not knowing where those lines lie. Snape is an interesting contrast to this because he's so in control. And that's because he straddles the battle lines. They run through him. They tear him apart. Both sides trust him and neither side trusts Mm -hmm. him. This is the thing I think about all the time with Snape. He lets his guard down for a second. Mm -hmm. and the Dark Lord will peer into his mind and peel the skin off his bones over an eternity. His suffering would be immense. That's the pressure he deals with all the time, and it's thankless. Mm -hmm. His sole reason for living, the vehicle for his redemption, Harry Potter, the spitting image of James, hates him and wishes him dead. And despite his promise to protect Harry, Snape loathes him, too, truly does think him entitled and spoiled and overly proud. It's a thankless existence that Snape deals with.
0: But nothing that Harry has ever done has wounded Snape like that last line. Don't screamed Snape and his face was suddenly demented and human as though he was in as much pain as the yelping, howling dog stuck in the burning house behind them call me coward. Snape is many things to many people in the story and in our world, but he is undeniably brave. When Harry learns the truth at last, the gleam of it pouring from Snape as he draws his final breaths, he'll understand this so fully, so transformatively, that he will go on to name his second son after Snape. Albus Severus, we will see Harry say in the Deathly Hallows epilogue. You were named for two headmasters of Hogwarts. One of them was a Slytherin, and he was probably the bravest man I ever knew. There is a long, miserable road to travel between now and then, full of lies and loneliness and misunderstanding. Snape knows that he is not well liked, that he never has been. Even in his own childhood home, he felt unwanted, felt the need to craft this moniker this identity for himself, the Half-Blood Prince. That's why Lily's affection and acceptance meant so much to him and unlocked so much for him. We will keep saying it because it is important to state clearly. Snape is deeply, deeply flawed, but he has spent every moment since Lily's death working to protect Harry without ever once asking for recognition or gratitude, begging, in fact, for his efforts to remain a secret. This must be between us, we will see him tell Dumbledore and the prince's tale. Swear it. I cannot bear, especially Potter's son, I want your word. My word, Severus, that I shall never reveal the best of you. And so the word coward calls his entire life, Mm -hmm. not just this moment, but his entire existence, into question, undermines every effort that he has ever made, not only to protect Harry, but to honor his bond with Dumbledore too. He's just committed an act, not of cowardice, but of unrivaled bravery, fully sacrificing whatever remained of his reputation for the rest of his life in order to honor his pledge to Dumbledore and ensure that he can continue to carry out Dumbledore's plan. He robbed himself of the companionship of the one person who actually believes in him and cares about him. Of course he looks inhuman. Of course he's in as much pain as the howling dog. He feels like he's on fire in this moment, the agony of it, and everything in his life that's led to this point burning him from the inside.
1: He hits Harry with a spell that feels like a whip, and only the sudden intervention of Buckbeak, with wings, her wings, love you, seemingly saves Harry, despite Buckbeak's slashes and shrieks Snape, who along with Harry and Draco and the Death Eaters are at this moment, the only one who know that Dumbledore is dead, escapes. Harry calls for Hagrid, who arrives with Fang and helps Harry to his feet. Harry sinks, quote, with a cry of thankfulness, shaking head to foot. What else can this poor boy suffer through? Harry, in a truly touching moment, reaches out to touch Fang to seek assurance, a feeling that he's alive. That's he feels so his, sad. He feels his warm body quivering. Then together, they put out the fire on Hagrid's hut. Surveying the wreckage of his burnt home, the gameskeeper says, It's not too bad. Nothing dumb Lord wouldn't be able to put right. That he doesn't insane. know. Six years ago, Hagrid experienced the joy of telling Harry he was a wizard, but also the burden of telling Harry about his past and his fame. Now Harry must face this burden. He alone on the grounds knows the truth. He must be the one to tell Hagrid, to whom Dumbledore has also been a father, to whom Dumbledore represents the very best of life itself, that the world has ended. From the book, Harry felt a searing pain in his stomach at the sound of the name. In the silence and the stillness, horror rose inside him. Dumbledore's death is like the sun going out. You understand logically that it will happen at some point. He was old. Talked about it all the time how old he was. But you don't think you'll be around when it does. Harry haltingly, his throat constricting, tells Hagrid that Snape killed Dumbledore, that Dumbledore is dead. And Hagrid does not believe it. Harry knows that Hagrid thinks he's sustained a blow to the head, that he's speaking nonsense. It's inconceivable to Hagrid that Dumbledore could be gone, that the sun could have gone out just as it would have been to Harry if he hadn't seen it just as it initially was, even though he had.
0: Harry lets Hagrid guide him back toward the school, where many windows are now lit and people are pouring out onto the front lawn to gaze up at the dark mark in the sky, the back of the cover art that terrified American readers before they even cracked the book. Mm -hmm. (sighs) Harry sees people moving toward the spot where he knows Dumbledore's body must be. What's that? lying on the grass. Haggard asks, it's hard even now, more than a decade after we read this book for the first time, to think of Dumbledore like this, Mm -hmm. to think of this great wizard, this great man, reduced to just a shape on the ground, an indecipherable something in the distance. (sighs) Harry feels the pain in his body as though he's experiencing it from a distance. Quote, what was real and inescapable was the awful, pressing feeling in his chest. He and Hagrid move through the crowd, and Harry hears Hagrid's, quote, moan of pain and shock. But he can't comfort Hagrid or anyone right now. He's in too much pain himself. And he walks on and crouches down beside Dumbledore. <sighs> this part is devastating. Quote, he had known there was no hope from the moment that the full body buying curse Dumbledore had placed upon him lifted. <laughs> this kills me. Known that it could have happened only because its caster was dead. But there was still no preparation for seeing him here, spread eagle, broken. The greatest wizard Harry had ever or would ever meet. And there's just something so devastatingly sad here about the way magic works. Mm-hmm. That Harry, even though his heart and soul could not comprehend Dumbledore's death, knew it rationally in his Mm -hmm. mind because the magic had lifted. Because Dumbledore's magical imprint was gone. That known magic that Albus had sent into the world toward Harry lifted along with his life. Harry and readers alike always thought of Dumbledore as a god. But he was a man, flesh and blood flawed and mortal. And when Harry approaches him, his limbs are sticking out at odd angles, but his eyes are closed. And Harry, just such a touching moment, reaches out and straightens his glasses and wipes the blood from his mouth, quote. Then he gazed down at the wise old face and tried to absorb the enormous and incomprehensible truth that never again would Dumbledore speak to him. Never again could he help. At Dumbledore's funeral, Harry will harp on this newfound isolation with the loss of not only another mentor, but this particular mentor really means. Harry so often resented what Dumbledore withheld, but he got so much from him, too. He learned more from the headmaster than from anyone else in his life. Mm -hmm. He learned about Voldemort's past and about his horcruxes and about his weaknesses, yes, but he learned something much more valuable, too. He learned about the source of his own Strength. And as Harry kneels, he feels something hard beneath his body and looks down to see the locket that's fallen from Dumbledore's pocket, the object that led them on this fateful chase into the night. It's opened from the force of the fall. Quote And although he could not feel more shock or horror or sadness than he felt already, Harry knew as he picked it up that there was something wrong. Man, the despair. Mm -hmm. It's not as big as it should be. There's no ornate s marking, and the only thing inside is a scrap of parchment, which Harry pulls loose to read. Quote, to the Dark Lord, I know I will be dead long before you read this, but I want you to know that it was I who discovered your secret. I have stolen the real horcrux and intend to destroy it as soon as I can. I face death in the hope that when you meet your match, you will be mortal once more. R.A.B. Boy, is she good at setting up the next book. Yeah. Harry cannot think about this mystery now. Only what this discovery means. This isn't a real horcrux. Dumbledore drank the potion and weakened himself for nothing, Harry thinks. Harry does not know, of course, that Dumbledore was dying anyway from the ring's lethal curse. He doesn't have the ability here and now to realize how much of value the trip into the cave really taught him, regardless of what he's holding in his hands right now. It just feels like one more loss, one more failure, one more horrible weight that he must carry and that he must now carry alone. Quote, Harry crumpled the parchment in his hand and his eyes burned with tears as behind him Fang began to howl. Jason, Mm -hmm. think your little jokes will help you on your deathbed then? Jokes. No, no, these are manners. Do it. Toss the invisibility cloak over our heads and lead us into the restricted section to teach us everything we need to know about your favorite spell, Avada Kedavra.
1: Of all the spells in the magical world, three are designated as the most vile. In Wizarding Britain, using any of the unforgivable curses warrants a life sentence in Azkaban. And of the three unforgivable curses, the most evil is the killing curse, Avada Kedavra, which, when used successfully, brings instant death to its target. The name Avada Kedavra is an example of Rowling's play on real terms from other languages when inventing her spells. At the Edinburgh Book Festival in 2004, she told the audience, It's an ancient spell in Aramaic, and it is the original of abracadabra, which means, let the thing be destroyed. Originally it was used to cure illness and the thing was the illness, but I decided to make it the thing as in the person standing in front of me. I take a lot of liberties with things like that. I twist them around and make them mine. The spell indeed destroys its target, but not as simply as by just pointing a wand and uttering the words. Like with all unforgivable curses, the caster has to really mean it and have sufficient magical ability for the spell to have any effect. As Bardai Moody tells the class in Goblet, quote, Avada Kedavra is a curse that needs a powerful bit of magic behind it. You could all get your wands out now and point them at me and say the words, and I doubt I'd get so much as a nosebleed. Other spells like Sectumsempra and whatever horror Dollehoff unleashed on Hermione in the Department of Mysteries certainly could prove fatal if used in a certain fashion, but only Avada Kedavra produces one result and one result only when it hits its target, at least in all cases, but Harry's. Death. When wielded with those initial demands in mind, Nevada Cadaver is a devastating and unstoppable weapon. Thanks to Lily's sacrifice, Harry Potter is the only known survivor in history. And although Dumbledore also saves Harry in the Ministry of Magic's atrium by sending a statue to block the path of Voldemort's curse and Fox intercepts a jet of light intended for Dumbledore, that's not the same thing as countering it. In other words, there's no opposing spell or killing curse-specific shield that provides any sort of defense mechanism against it. You can dodge it, but you can't beat it. It is unknown exactly how the killing curse snuffs life from its recipient, but it does so instantly with no sign of injury, and it produces a green jet of light and a rushing sound, like the veil from the Department of Mysteries, the rush of death incarnate, on its way toward the target. As we know from both Goblin and Prince, with the deaths of the Riddles and Amelia Bones, this can confuse Muggle police to no end. Visible outcomes can arise if the spell misses a person and hits an inanimate object, though, because it is forceful enough to produce fires or explosions. The old Potter home at Godric's Hollow, as we learn in Hallows, is a ruin after Voldemort's attack. So the Killing Curse is incredibly dangerous, used almost exclusively by Dark Wizards, and seemingly serves as Voldemort's favorite spell. If Expelliarmus is Harry's true love, then Avada Kedavra is Tom Riddle's, sorry Bellatrix, which makes this last bit of information about the curse all the more wild. According to a note in the Tales of Beetle the Bard, the Killing Curse, along with Cruciatus and Imperius Curses, wasn't ruled illegal until 1717. Witches and wizards could just go around putting people under their control, torturing them and murdering them with abandon before that time until the Ministry of Magic finally put a stop to such shenanigans a few years after its founding. The ministry certainly has its flaws, but at least it got that one right. <laughs> Love bar. <laughs> I'm sure the debate revolved around things like, yes, but people will still do it. (laughs) It doesn't stop it if you just make it illegal. Oh, boy.
0: Wizarding justice. Yes. Really something. Jason. Yes. You'd turn my foreshadowing on me like your filthy producer, would you? I don't think so, no. We will split our nuggets, if not our souls, together by sharing seven of our favorite insights and observations from Prince chapters 27 and 28. Because seven remains the
1: most powerfully magical number. You go first. Number one, much like the locket itself once was, the truth of Rab's identity also awaits in Grimald Place. When Harry, Hermione, and Ron return there to hide out after fleeing the wedding and then the streets of London, Harry spots a name plaque on Sirius's brother's bedroom door. Quote, do not enter without express permission of Regulus Arcturus Black. This discovery is followed shortly thereafter by the memory of the locket they found while cleaning the house before their fifth year, which leads them to question creature which leads to the horrifying reveals in Creature's Tale and the eventual discovery that the locket, briefly in Mundungus's possession, went to Umbridge, from whom it must be stolen. Number two. As discussed, Draco says that he got the idea for his Rosmerta controlled
0: coin from the DA. In the book's closing chapters, we will learn that the actual DA coins, the originals, played a role in this battle too. Neville and Luna entered the fight because they responded to Hermione's summons via the coin, responded, Because they still check their DA coins, hoping for a message about a
1: return of the meetings. A return, in other words, to their group of friends. Number three, we'll learn in chapter 29 that the squashy shape Harry stepped over was our guy Bill Weasley. Maimed by the vile Fenrir Greyback. Speaking of, Greyback's repulsive display of unbridled lust for human flesh foretells a horrifying moment from Deathly Hallows when he'll sink his teeth into lavender brown. In the book, Lavender's fate remains unclear in the movie. She's unambiguously finito.
0: Number four, Harry leaves his invisibility cloak atop of the astronomy tower when he's freed from his full body bind and runs to chase Snape. It is one of the quietest but saddest bookend moments in the series because, of course, the first time that Harry left his cloak atop that particular tower was in Sorcerer's Stone when he and Hermione took Norbert up there. And in that instance, the cloak... Returned to Harry thanks to Dumbledore, who left it folded for him along with the note, just in case. Dumbledore, of course,
1: cannot return it to him this time. Number five. From the book, Ginny was locked in combat with the lumpy Death Eater Amicus, who was throwing hex after hex at her while she dodged them. Amicus was giggling, enjoying the sport. Crucio, Crucio, you can't dance forever, pretty. In the next book, Harry will use Crucio against Amicus. And way to defend your gal, Harry. Speaking of spells, among the many that Harry uses during this stretch, his one true love, Expelliarmus, is not among them highly uncharacteristic for our dude. Ironically, the disarming trauma is only used by none other than his nemesis, Draco Malfoy. Number six. In
0: Deadly Hallows, when Harry mourns over Dobby, who, like Dumbledore, sacrificed himself for Harry, Luna reaches down and closes the elf's eyes, saying softly, there. Now he could be sleeping. And when Harry looks at Dumbledore's body below the tower, he thinks that, but for his broken limbs, quote, he might have been sleeping. It's a small but lovely link between two of Harry's dearest companions and protectors. And the way that Harry finds Dumbledore's body here also recalls the way that he discovered the unicorn in the forest in Sorcerer's Stone. Quote, Harry had never seen anything so beautiful and sad. Its long, slender legs were stuck out at odd angles where it had fallen and its mane was spread pearly white on the dark leaves. Another link here between Dumbledore and something so
1: beautiful and powerful. Number seven from the book. Poor Mr. Filch would not, of course, think to check a bottle of Rosemary's. Why not? Why? Are you doing security or not? I understand. Listen, Dumbledore, I didn't want to question you, especially after your death. <laughs> and I understand you take the security seriously, but can we get somebody else? Yeah. Who can check? For potions and stuff, and we'll also just check everything. You can't be like, "Well, it's from Rose Murder. she's a friend, so we're not going to check it." What about
0: literally the thing that happened—the <laughs> Imperius curse? They know that everyone might right. be under someone else's control. It's a thing we should worry about. Where's the Molly Wobbles identity check equivalent of Did Rose Murder really send this, and did she do it in her own right mind? I mean, Filch
1: is too busy, I guess, checking the structural integrity of the chains hanging from his ceiling with Madame Pince. <laughs> <laughs> we got to inject some comedy into the episode. Filch, do your job, my guy. Mal. Yeah. Fight back. <laughs> Would I challenge you to pick the episode's winner? Fight back, you cowardly. Every episode, we're going to honor the person or I do, who captivate us the most. And today, we're dishing out some last minute points and awarding the House Cup, too.
0: Severus Snape! Of course, come on. Yeah. I mean, who else is it going to be? This is actually the rare win on Binge Mode that we award mm-hmm. both for how it plays in the here and now and for what it really means in the long run. Yes.
1: In either view, Snape clearly wins. He murders Albus Dumbledore in Draco's stead simultaneously, fulfilling it, which is a tough look on one <laughs> level.
0: <laughs> Very tough.
1: Extremely tough. But this simultaneously fulfills his vow help Draco his unbreakable vow to help mm-hmm. Draco as well as accomplishing Dumbledore's plan.
0: It's just amazing. It's like when you don't know everything it's like wow. Yeah. They won. They beat Dumbledore. They did it. That's incredible. And then when you realize what it's all actually about, it's like Yeah. He and Dumbledore were playing a chess game nobody even knew
1: they were. Yeah. On it was that a game board. it was a game above the game, a game <sighs> beyond the game. Man. Snape also absolutely owns Harry. He just owns him.
0: In one-on-one combat. just doing the Dikembe McDumbo finger whack. He doesn't even...
1: Over and over again atop the Chosen One. He doesn't even duel him. That's how much he owns it. He's just like, no. He's just like, I'm not even going to do it That one, nope. Nope. During his duel with Harry, he reveals his identity as the Half-Blood Prince. Emotionally devastating Harry who trusted and defended the Prince's textbook.
0: We will talk more next episode, by the way, about Snape's identity as the Half-Blood Prince and what that means. And as a result of the Death Eater's takeover, Snape cements his place. In Voldemort's camp more firmly, more assuredly than ever before. And this sets him on the path to ascend to headmaster of Hogwarts. Again, if he's really bad, that's a position of power. If he's really good, he's able to honor the promise that we will learn in hallows he made to Dumbledore to always keep Hogwarts' students safe. And he will use his position as Voldemort's deputy and the head of Hogwarts to carry out the rest of that mission to protect Harry and defeat the Dark Lord. Shouts to Severus. Mm -hmm. Well, friends. Blocked again and again and again until you learned to keep your mouth shut and your earbuds in. Just like Isaac Lee and Zach Cram, our indispensable producer and researcher. We hope that you had as much fun as we did today. Not a fun episode, really.
1: We hope that you... Not a fun one.
0: Processed your grief... Yes, please. ...as much as we did today. <laughs> and that you're as excited as we are for what will be another incredibly sad episode. <laughs> Next time, when we will be discussing chapters 29 through 30, just absolutely devastating chapters. Get yeah, ready to cry. Get ready. The gutting conclusion of Prince. We hope you're also excited for the rest of this journey because we're not done yet. Until next episode, remember don't call us cowards.